a good friend of mine went on a missions trip several years ago. And when he returned from the trip, we went to lunch together to debrief about all that had happened. His assessment of the trip was that it was really a, a great trip. He grew spiritually. The team that was with him accomplished far more than they had planned to accomplish. Enriching time all around. However, one black cloud hung in the otherwise sunny blue sky of this missions trip. She was a member of the mission team, and she got on his nerves badly, daily. He offered this vivid description of her personality. It was like fingernails on a chalkboard. They clashed over and over again, and yet fewer than two years later, I officiated their wedding. (laughs) Somewhere along the way, this God did this 180-degree turnaround. I thought it not proper to mention that little detail at the wedding. The groom thought it was perfectly fine, so he told everyone the story of their first meeting and their unlikely marriage. In fact, both of them love to tell the story because it's a story of the power of God to bring them together, to bring them together, to bless them now with many children. Well, our story, yours and mine, as believers in Christ, it is the story of an unlikely match. The match between the God of the universe and people described as the least of all people. The unlikely match between enemies of God and those who become friends of God. The story of those who are far off being brought near. The story of the blemished and the stained and the wrinkled being transformed into a glorious bride of Christ, the glorious and perfect bridegroom. That's our story. And we can never forget it. That's the story that we should be telling and celebrating today on Valentine's Day. It's the story to which you and I are constantly responding in our lives. That's why we can never stop telling it. And so our worship together, week by week, is a reminder of that story. Just like pulling out our wedding photo album every week and retelling the story of the amazing love that Christ has for us and how we met. It's a reminder of all that we owe a Savior such as He is to us. And if we forget the story, we might forget what we owe. And so you and I must always be telling this story. That's what we're going to do this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 26. So if you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn in the Old Testament Deuteronomy chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew rack in front of you. When you've found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When you have entered the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you, and put them in a basket. Then 
Go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord your the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God And bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, once again, as we come as your people around your word, we pray that you would teach us. You have written this word for us. You have preserved it for us as well. And through the power of your spirit, you teach us through these words. You reveal yourself to us, your truth. You tell us who it is that we ought to be, what we ought to do. And so we thank you for this time. Thank you for this truth. Bless it to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, where is it that we can best tell the story of this unlikely match between us and God? In worship. Worship is the place to tell this story, and so worship becomes really important. In chapter 26 of Deuteronomy, it gives us a lot of information on how it is that you and I should worship rightly before the Lord. This chapter, 26 concludes this long section of Deuteronomy that began back in chapter 12. That was 13 months ago for you people who are keeping track. But if you've ever participated in any sort of a concert, you know the the two most important positions in that concert are the beginning and the end. And so whatever goal it is that you are hoping to accomplish through that particular concert, if it's to to move people or motivate them or inspire them, you don't bury what is going to move and inspire them in the middle of the concert. You put those moving and inspiring things either at the beginning or the end. You know that if you're running out of time, that you just don't have time to rehearse everything and it's not all going to be great, You don't spend the time you have left working on the middle, do you? No. You work on the beginning, you work on the end, so it will be really great. Because people are very likely to forget, or at least forgive, what's in the middle. Now, having said that, none of God's word should be forgotten by us. Okay, everybody hear me say that? 
None of God's word should be forgotten by us. It has value to us. We're responsible to know it all. But there are certain things in God's word that are really, really important that move us and motivate us and inspire us. Things that we can never forget. And worship is one of those things. So let's think about this long section in Deuteronomy, chapter 12 through 26. Let's call it the law concert. The law concert, because it's the section of the book that covers the law. Now, if this particular section of Scripture had a, a musical score accompanying it, chapter 12, the opening chapter, would certainly require thundering drums and crashing cymbals and frantic activity on the strings, a blast from the horns, chaotic and agitated rhythms and discord. Destroy completely all the high places on the high mountains and on the hills. And under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars. Boom. Smash their sacred stones. Boom. Burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idol of their God and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Now, though I've been known to go to sleep in concerts before, before, this is not a time that you would go to sleep. It's agitating. Makes you cower in your seat. Why must the opening be so violent? For what is the chaos and the confusion preparing us? Well, it's producing a longing for calm and for peace. Instead of agitation, harmony instead of discord. And that, of course, can be found in our lives only among those who worship the true and living God as He requires. And so that's what follows in chapter 12. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose to put His name for His dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and rejoice in everything you have put your hand to because the Lord your God has blessed you. Now that's how this law concert begins with worship. How does the law concert end? Chapter 26, with worship. You've heard it read. Beginning in verse 1, God commands the people that when they have entered into the promised land and when the very first harvest comes in, the people are to gather those first fruits in a basket, take them to the sanctuary and present them to God as an offering. That's worship. And so we see that worship takes these preeminent positions, the very beginning and the very end of this law concert. Worship wraps the other 13 chapters of the law that God gives in Deuteronomy and becomes a picture for us. Monday through Saturday, we are in the world. That's where we are. And prayerfully, we are attempting to faithfully live our lives for Christ. We're attempting to faithfully live out all that we have learned over these past 13 months 
from these law chapters in Deuteronomy. Attempting to be the people that God has called us to be. And to do what He has called us to do so that we can make a difference in this place for Jesus' sake. And then comes Sunday. Worship. What we do each day of our lives between the Sundays should be a preparation for worship. I realize that sounds like an extreme statement to make. But it's a claim that I think is borne out in the verses before us. Look, in these verses, God anticipates the time when the Israelites will be settled in the promised land. He anticipates the time that these former slaves are going to become farmers. He anticipates the time that he is going to bless the land as he he promised to bless it. He anticipates the time when these first crops from the first planting in the promised land are going to come in. And at that time, the Israelites are to go into their garden or field or vineyard or grove. And they are to harvest everything that they find there. And then they're to take that harvest and they're to lay it out. And they're to go to all that they have harvested and they're to look over it carefully. And and the, the biggest cluster of grapes with the most beautiful, juicy grapes on it, those go into the basket of the Lord. The most beautiful, the plumpest olives, they go into the basket of the Lord. The most beautiful, the grain, the golden wheat, that goes into the basket of the Lord. It belongs to Him. And so the entire process, the planting of the crops, the tedious tending of those crops through weeks and through months, it's all preparation for this moment, this basket moment, when the very best work of your hands belongs to the Lord. So all of life is a preparation for worship. The faithful worker, as he is working, will utter this prayer, Lord, bless my work so that in the end I will have something beautiful to offer to you. And so with that prayer and with that attitude, the first goal of work becomes not to have something for yourself, but the first goal of work becomes having something beautiful to give to the Lord. Now, we don't often view work that way, do we? It's tedious. It's difficult. We don't see it as enabling us to be able to provide something beautiful to give to the Lord. We typically view work as something we have to do and as a way for providing for ourselves. And so that's the reason that worship must wrap itself around our weeks to remind us of who we are and to remind us of what our purpose is. Otherwise, we might too easily live for ourselves. We might too easily spend for ourselves when worship doesn't remind us that we ought to do otherwise. So our attitude toward work and our motivation at work could be transformed if we viewed it in this way, if we kept the act of worship always before us. If the longing in our hearts was to have something beautiful to give to the Lord, if that's what inspired us. I know it's easy for me to say, 
Because listen, I have the best job in the world. I do, honestly. I have the best job in the world. I get to do this. I love it. All of you aren't in a, a position that I'm in. You don't love your jobs as much as I love my job. But nevertheless, when we worship actively and when we keep worship in our minds, even the most difficult, tedious job can be transformed. So, when the basket has been eagerly and joyfully filled with the first fruit and the best fruit, the Israelite is to take that basket and to present it to the Lord. Now, the Lord instructs His people how that presentation is to be made, and He instructs them on what to say as they present it. It is not left to the giver to give however it is he wants to give. God tells him how to do it. It's not left to the giver to say whatever it is he wants to say. Some extemporaneous outburst. No, God specifically instructs in what to say. And what people instructs his people to say is to tell the story over and over and over again. Because the story reminds them of the source of everything they have, and that source is God. It's the story of an unlikely match between God and the least of these people. It's a story of the 180-degree work of God in their lives. Many scholars see these verses that we've read this morning as the very first creed, the first creed of the people of Israel. Words that the worshipers recite together as they bring their offerings to the priest and then bow before the altar of the Lord. Now here's an aside, and it's a freebie. You want a freebie? Come on, you want a freebie? Thank you. It's just that creeds and confessions, they get a bad rap. So do physical activities in worship like kneeling or, or bowing. And I think it's because those activities and and creeds and confessions, they're associated with a church that became corrupt. And even now in our day, they're used by churches that we might say, well, they're a little bit dead and ritualistic. They say creeds and confessions. But let me just tell you, saying together as one voice, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, that's not going to kill a church. If there is no life in a church, an explanation has to be found somewhere else for the lifelessness. Neither does kneeling in prayer or bowing in worship take the life out of a church. Any more than preaching in blue jeans and a t-shirt accompanied by a praise band while the congregation sips coffee and eats donuts doesn't necessarily infuse a church with spiritual life. And so I think we've opened the stained glass window and thrown the baby out with the bathwater. When we throw away creeds and confessions and kneeling and bowing, when giving form to worship is seen as stifling the spirit and rejected in favor of spontaneity. You know, the church, I'm almost through with the freebie, but not yet. The church that I grew up in was well served by a well-loved pastor for 27 years. We loved our pastor. 
Well, when he retired, we hired a new pastor. And you know what that new pastor did? He wrote out his prayers. And then he had the nerve to read those prayers in the worship service. I was appalled. We were all appalled. The prayers were meaningful enough, but, but come on. You have to read the prayer. You can't just extemporaneously pray. This man must not know or love the Lord if he had to write down his prayers. C.S. Lewis writes this. Many mistakenly, mistakenly think that avoiding formality and ceremony is an evidence of simple faith and humility. (laughs) You know, shucks. We just love the Lord. The modern habit of doing ceremonial things unceremoniously is no proof of humility. Rather, it proves the worshiper's inability to forget about himself in the right and his readiness to spoil for everyone else the proper place of ritual. That's C.S. Lewis. But who cares about that? If creed... If creed and confession and physical demonstrations of humility are pleasing to God, if they're required by God, who are we? Who are we to set aside these acts as meaningless? We read from Revelation chapter 4 in our call to worship this morning. And it's a picture of worship in heaven. And it has structure. If you read chapter 5, you even find out they're wearing robes. They're wearing robes. And specific positions are taken. And there's this antiphonal call and response. Certain words are said and then then everybody joins in in response to words they say together. And listen, this is an Old Testament pre-Jesus worship. This is contemporary worship because it's going on right now in heaven. Who are we to say that our thoughts, our extemporaneous eruptions are the only place where life and true spirituality resides, and to cast aside the liturgy of heaven. There ends the freebie. It's done. So let's get back to the passage. Verse 3 begins this liturgy of worship. The worshiper arrives at the sanctuary with basket in hand, and he says to the priest, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come. To the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. I have come into the land. It's true. Here I am in the land. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. I would not be here in the land if it were not for God. But because he intervened, I have come into the land. And so the very first words out of the worshiper's mouth orient the worshiper and focus him on the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the power of God to keep his promises. All of them. The worshiper then takes the basket with the beautiful harvest in it and he presents it to the priest. And the priest accepts the basket from the worshiper and puts the basket down in front of the altar of the Lord. And then the worshiper says these creed slash confession type words of verses 5 through 10. These words of the story. Spoken together and spoken often, 
This story grounds the life of the worshiper. He says, my father was a wandering Aramean. This is a reference to Jacob. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, one of the top three big ones. Lived in Aramea for a long time. He was a wandering Aramean. And so the worshiper identifies himself as part of this covenant community of faith. He's part of it with all the blessings and obligations that go with it. The remainder of the story contains contrasts. The 180 degree work of God. Jacob was a wanderer. No land of his own. No country of his own. Even as an old man who was ready to die, he had no country. But God intervened. God intervened. And because God intervened, this worshiper with basket in hand is no longer a wanderer. God has given to him a home and a land, and he's blessed that land with bounty. An unlikely story. Jacob went down to Egypt. Few people with him, 70 in all. But God intervened. The ragtag family was not blotted out. The family did not die off. Instead, God turned them into a mighty nation, a powerful nation. That's what the worshiper remembers with basket in his hand, an unlikely story. The Egyptians mistreated the people while they were there, but God intervened because he is a God who hears the prayers and hears the cries of his people. And so with mighty and miraculous power, he delivered them out of Egypt, out of their suffering, and he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Now that's their story. Everything this worshiper has to offer, everything came to him as a result of his six days of labor each week. It's a result of God's goodness to him. So take out all the but God's. And that story. And what do you have left? A homeless wanderer, a family on the brink of extinction, isolation, hopelessness, futility of life, suffering, slavery. Take God out, that's what you have left. So telling the story reminds the worshiper should he ever be tempted to forget the difference that God made in his life? Because God is a God of grace and love and mercy and compassion. So telling the story makes the worshiper eager to give his gifts to the Lord. To lay it down at the altar of the Lord and bow before the Lord as a visible sign of humility and submission. As a demonstration for all who may be watching that he recognizes that all that he has, of which this basket is just a token representation, it's all from the Lord and it all rightly belongs to the Lord. That's what the story does. And that's why we have to tell the story often. It reminds us of who we are. And it reminds us of who we would be if it weren't for the 180-degree work of God in our lives. Do you realize what He's done? He's moved us. He's turned us from the path that was leading us to death and destruction. And He's done a 180 in our life through faith in Christ, and He's turned us around. And what path has He put us on? The path to life 
everlasting life. That's what He has done for us. The sad news is that somewhere along the way, the Israelites either stopped telling the story, they forgot the story in its true form, Maybe in worship they opted for their own extemporaneous utterances instead of God's liturgy. And before you know it, what happened? They started including the stories of other gods in their story. Baal, the most famous. They began to worship him. So that by the time of the prophet Amos, grateful givers with basket in hand reciting these words couldn't be found. God says to those people, listen, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy, you can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. They didn't want to worship, present their gifts, acknowledge God. Through the prophet Malachi, God says, you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them when you give blind animals, animals that are crippled and diseased. You dishonor my name with your actions by bringing contemptible food. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord. So see, the stakes are high. For the people of Israel, and for you and for me, if we forget the story, if we fail to tell the story over and over again, we get off track and we lose our way. So in worship, we must tell the story over and over and allow it to orient our lives to the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. When we present ourselves to God in worship, we must adopt Paul's 180-degree attitude. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's say that together and remind each other of this part of the story. Ready? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And one more time for memory's sake. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And what is Paul? A result of the 180 degree work of God. He also writes in that passage, I am the least, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he tells a story in that chapter. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the story. That's the good news. All we are is a result of this good news and this good work of Christ in our lives. And so it's my humble opinion, and it's only that, 
my opinion. But if you have to preach on giving, if you have to coerce giving, the point has been missed. It seems to me that the gospel has been missed. Because the gospel reminds us of who we are. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel reminds us of what we have and its source. For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. This is an unlikely story, but it's ours. And so we've got to focus on this story of our 180 degree God and the gospel of Christ and the unlikely match that it makes between you and me and a holy God. We've got to tell the story over and over and over again in worship. We've got to confess it over and over and over again. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. When we do that, when we hold on to that confession of faith and tell the story over and over again, a lot of other things will take care of themselves. When we worship, our lives will be rightly oriented on God, on who he is, on who he has made us to be, and on what we owe him. So let's worship together often. Wrap our lives in worship. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you. Oh, we thank you that you haven't left us on our own to figure things out for ourselves. We would be so lost. Father, we live in a world that's trying to figure it out. A world that rejects you and your truth is the way. And so we're left trying to find what it is, and what a mess we behold. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray that you would convict each of our hearts now the importance of worship. It's not about us, not about how we feel, not about what we want. It's about you and who you are and what you require of us, and that is the worship of your people. We present ourselves and what we have to you as a sacrifice, Lord. We tell the story of God, of your work, what you have done, what you are doing. It's your story, and we tell it, and we are so grateful for it. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to be transformed by the good news, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, that you died for sinners, that you were buried, but that you rose again. You ascended into heaven, and there you reign at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us even in this moment. Thank you for that. Transform our lives by that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take out your bulletins. You'll see there the Apostles' Creed. What an awesome opportunity for us to stand and confess together to the glory of God what it is that he has made to be true. Let's join our voices, say together the Apostles' Creed with gusto. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. To God be the glory. People of God, do you believe that? Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.